Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles as we kick off this new series and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find it in the blue Bible on page 616. And if you got your Bible, it's right after Proverbs. If you get to Isaiah, you went too far. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. As you're turning there, I was telling somebody this beforehand, but I, I would love for you to pray for me through this series. I am, I am both simultaneously, I don't know if I've been this excited for a series and this terrified of a series. And I don't know what the mixture is because it's not a book that most of us, including myself, are as familiar with as some others. We just came out of the Psalms and we're like, okay, I know the Psalms, I get those. What is this thing when I get to Ecclesiastes? So I would love for you to be praying on a regular basis for myself or Pastor Ben or whoever's preaching um, as we seek to, to understand it ourselves and then help you enjoy and delight in what God has for us in this book. So having said that, let me invite you to hear the word of the Lord in Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in his book, Hoping for Happiness, the author Barnabas Piper talks about the connection between our happiness and, of all things, command strips. You know, those little hooks that have the sticky stuff on the back so you don't ruin your walls? Well, he shares in there how when he first discovered these hooks, now granted, he was single at the time, so bear that in mind, he thought these things were awesome. He would put these little hooks all over his apartment and he'd use them to hang pictures and brooms, mops, mirrors, anything that needed hung, he'd be using these little command strips. But then without fail, sometimes a few hours later, sometimes a few days later, he'd be in the other room and he'd hear a crash. And he'd go explore and sure enough, whatever had been hanging was laying on the floor. Because the hanger hadn't been strong enough 
to hold the weight. But rather than learn his lesson, he'd just go get another one and try it again. And I want you to listen to what he says about how that scenario connects to our happiness. Here's what he says. We hang happiness on hooks in the same way that I hung pictures, thinking that our job or our kids or our vacation can bear the weight of our expectation. The problem, though, is that our expectations for happiness are too heavy for the hooks we use. Those little plastic ones are designed for light or temporary weights, but we weigh them down with expectations for deep and lasting happiness. He goes on to say, I was slow to learn my lesson, but eventually I figured out what kinds of hooks I needed for heavier pictures. We are much slower to learn what kinds of hooks we can hang heavy expectations on. We keep being shocked when they crash into pieces on the floor. Then we grab the same kind of hook, maybe in a different color this time, and try again with predictably disappointing results. Next time, we we try moving the hook to a different location. Same results. And we just keep on going. Rarely, if ever, considering whether our hooks are strong enough to support the happiness we expect. I love that story because I think it's such a good picture of what Ecclesiastes is trying to do. One of the goals of Ecclesiastes is to help us realize that the hooks we're trying to hang our happiness on aren't strong enough. They can't support the weight of our desire for joy. They're not able to hold up true and lasting satisfaction. That's one thing that Ecclesiastes does and does well. It exposes our dissatisfaction with life. It shows us how all the different things we pursue to try to fill the emptiness inside of us, the things we pursue to try to give our lives meaning, are ultimately just vanity and a striving after the wind. And the book also is honest about why that is. It doesn't just simply state that fact. It says, and here's why. It says it's because sooner or later, everyone dies. One writer calls Ecclesiastes the pen that bursts every bubble we might use to try to shield ourselves from that truth, from the truth that sooner or later, we all die. It's a book that isn't interested in pretending It deals with real life, with its real problems, and real questions. And sometimes, that makes us uncomfortable. Because we're not used to such honesty, are we? And because it's so brutally honest, many people wrongly think that Ecclesiastes is a despairing or a depressing book. In fact, many Christians simply don't know what to do with this book. In fact, Here's how one commentator, a guy named Trimper Longman, here's how he sums up the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, Life is profitless, totally absurd. This oppressive message lies at the heart of the Bible's strangest book. Enjoy life if you can, advises the author, for old age will soon overtake you. And even as you enjoy, 
know that the world is meaningless. How many of you are excited for Ecclesiastes? Now, I'm going to tell you up front, I think he's dead wrong. Okay? But, before we get to that, in the spirit of honesty, since Ecclesiastes is honest, let's be honest, and say there are things about this book that are challenging. And that are hard to understand. They're difficult to grasp and fully get our minds around. So as we go through this, we are going to have to kind of wrestle together with this book. And I think that's on purpose. Because this is a book that's trying to explain what life in a fallen world is like. And isn't life like that? It's hard to understand. It's mysterious. It's confusing. It's frustrating. And Ecclesiastes is going to help us look those realities in the eye. Now what this book won't do is it won't give us easy answers or give us all the answers that we want. In fact, another commentator said, it is a book in which we keep struggling with the problems of life. And as we struggle, we learn to trust God with the questions, even when we don't have all the answers. Now, going back to what I said a minute ago, despite its difficulties, I think that commentator, Longman, is absolutely wrong about Ecclesiastes. Because while it may be challenging, I want to be crystal clear up front I don't think this is a despairing or depressing book. In fact, I think it helps us better understand where to look for real, lasting satisfaction and how to enjoy the life we've been given. In a very real way, it helps us become more fully human. I think the message of Ecclesiastes can literally change our lives. And I don't say that lightly. And so again, I would ask, would you pray with me? Because that's what I'm praying, that God would do that for us in this series. That he would change our very lives with the message of Ecclesiastes. Okay, now before we jump in, I think it can be helpful to have a sense of how the book as a whole is organized. So let me give you an outline. If you want to go ahead and throw up that. This is for the whole book. Okay, I'm going to give you kind of the the flyover. Now, don't worry. We're going to come back to a lot of the details of this over and over again, but this is just to get your bearings. So the first thing you need to know is that there's actually two voices we're going to hear. There's the author of the book who we'll only hear in the prologue and the epilogue. And then there's this other voice that we'll call the preacher. And he's the one speaking throughout it. Okay, so you've got this message by the author framing the whole book. He introduces us to the preacher in verse 1, and then at the very end, he's going to come back and say, all right, now that you've heard his message, let me kind of summarize it and give my conclusions about what he said. Okay, and you, you'll notice that these are color-coded. I hope you, they're meant to parallel each other. That's not an accident. So then the second thing we see is there's a theme. I, I used a word up there that you're like, that's not in my Bible. I'll explain that. All is hevel. You can think of it all as vanity. And that's what starts when the preacher's getting ready to start telling us what he thinks. The very first thing, as we saw this morning, is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And guess how he ends his talk in 12.8? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, in between those, there's two poems. Kind of a poem to kick things off and a poem to wrap up his thoughts. 
and they're related. The first one talks about time. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then his second one is about youth and old age. So still talking about time. And then in the middle, you've got the two main sections of the book. The first half of the book is where the preacher is investigating life. He's going to be trying to answer the question in verse 3. What does man gain by all his toil under the sun? That's the main question he's going to spend chapter 1 verse 12 to chapter 6 verse 9 trying to answer. And then there's the second half of the book where he's going to start offering some of his conclusions. Saying, okay, I tried all these things. I sampled a lot of different ways of living. Now let me report some of my results about what life is like. And so that's going to be in chapter 6, verse 10 through eleven six. Okay, so if you don't get all this copied down, that's fine. I'm happy to send this to you or we'll put it up again periodically. But I just wanted you to have a flyover of where we're going, that there is an order to this. Now, we're going to zoom in on our passage in particular. So go ahead and throw that. So this is for us this morning. So I call this message, Nothing New Under the Sun. And here's what we're going to see. Like I said, in verse 1, we meet the preacher. Then in verse 2, we see what is his point. And I summarized it there as life is momentary and mysterious. Verse 3, we come to his question. What do we gain by all our toil? And then most of the passage, verses 4 to 11, we come to his poem. Which I have taken the liberty of entitling, The More Things Change, dot, dot, dot. All right, so that's where we're going. So let's start. Let's jump right in and meet our preacher. Look at verse 1. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, the word for preacher, that's translated preacher here, is a Hebrew word, koheleth. And I'm just going to advertise up front. You're going to learn some new words today. It's not going to be like that every week. But there's some key concepts that we've got to get our, our brains around. So I'm going to use a little other language here. So the word in Hebrew is koheleth. And what it means is it refers to someone who gathers people together. Okay? They, they round up a crowd and it's for a purpose. And when they translated that word koheleth into Greek, guess what they got? Ecclesiastes. That's the Greek word for this one who gathers. And it's a very similar word. You might hear Ecclesiastes, Ecclesia, Ecclesia, the church. So the idea of a church is a gathered body of people who come together for something. And now there's usually someone who's there who's gathered them to, to do something. In this case, to teach, to tell them. So this man is literally one who gathered the people to teach them. So some translations call him the teacher. Some call him the preacher. So we're going to just refer to him as the preacher. Now, many people believe that this preacher is King Solomon. Why would they think that? Well, verse 1 says he's the son of David, as Solomon was. He was king of Jerusalem, as Solomon was. In fact, he was also known for his, Solomon was known for his unmatched wisdom and unparalleled wealth, just as the preacher will tell us in a few chapters, he was greater in both those areas than all who came before him. So as you can see, there are really good reasons to think the preacher is Solomon. But there are also good reasons many other people don't think it was Solomon. I'll give you just a couple of reasons. Number one, it never says his name. Unlike Proverbs, which starts out the Proverbs of Solomon, clearly ascribes 
authorship said, here's who said it. If it was Solomon, he could have just put his name in. And some of the situations described in the book don't seem to fit well with what was going on in Israel at the time King Solomon reigned. They feel like they're out of joint. Like, that didn't happen during that time period. So the question is, so was it Solomon? I don't know. And here's the other thing. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't change anything about how we understand the book. So yes, you can get lost in rabbit trails, but at the end of the day, it changes nothing about the message. Throughout, we're simply going to call him the preacher. Okay? So that's who he is. Then in verse 2, we come to this preacher's main point in the book. Look at verse 2. He says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And since this is a theme, this is really key to understanding the book. This is, this is where people go very different directions with understanding it. So we've got to make sure we understand what he's saying here and what he's not saying. That word translated vanity is that word you saw up in the screen a little bit ago, hevel. And it's kind of confusing that a lot of translations will translate it, including the ESV, as either vanity or meaningless. Because as soon as you use one of those words, that sounds really negative, doesn't it? I mean, if everything's vanity, if it's empty, worthless, or it's meaningless, well, you can understand where people get such pessimistic views of the book. But we know right out of the gate that it can't mean meaningless because it wouldn't make sense for a couple reasons at least. Think with me here. If everything is truly meaningless then the preacher who's saying that would know that his own statement is meaningless as well. So if everything is meaningless, why should I listen to a guy's statement? Well, that doesn't mean anything either. Second, all throughout the book, he's going to tell us one thing is better than another. Two is better than one, for instance. He's going to say this is better than that. Well, again, if everything's meaningless... Nothing is better than anything else. There is no relative value because nothing has value. So we know right out of the gate, it cannot mean meaningless. So if it doesn't mean vanity or meaningless, how should we understand this word hevel? Well, literally, the word means breath or smoke. And I think that's a really good picture for what he's trying to tell us about life. Because it helps us understand three things about life. First, this picture of breath or smoke, it helps us understand that life is short. Life is short. You've all heard the old illustration, but imagine you're out on a cold morning and you go, (sighs) right? You see your breath. How long does it last? It's not, not even, it's not five minutes, not one minute, not 30 seconds, it's It's there and gone in a moment. It's fleeting. It's the blink of an eye. And the first reality that we're confronted with in this book is he's saying, hey, life is like that. It's fleeting, like a breath. In fact, listen to how the Bible describes our lives. In Psalm 39, it says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. 
Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Psalm 144, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And in the New Testament, James tells us, what is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And whether we've all connected these dots, we've all felt this way, don't we? It's why we talk about how fast the summer has gone. And every time grandparents see their grandkids, wow, how, man, look how much you've grown. Look how big you've gotten. Right? It's like we can't get over how quickly time goes. Like, is it almost Christmas again? School started already? Even in our own bodies, we never quite feel like we're, we should be as old as we really are. Like, <laughs> I know, I know what, how old I am, but I don't feel that old. And we usually subtract, depending on how old. I think the older you are, the more you subtract in age, right? Because there's something that feels like, I, there's no way. That's too fast. Life is like blowing out a candle. That little wisp of smoke that goes up, it's there for a moment and then gone. That's part of what it means that everything is hevel. It's fleeting. It's here and then it's gone. But this picture of breath or smoke tells us a second thing about life as well. Because that picture also carries this sense of elusive elusive picture picture smoke from a campfire you're sitting around a fire smoke's coming at you what happens when you try to reach out and grab a hold of that smoke anybody ever had success like getting a fist full of it as soon as you try to grab it it slips right through your fingers you, you can't hold it still you, you can't take it with you somewhere else you can't control it and life is like that we try to get a hold of it and be in control, but the control we're looking for is always slipping through our fingers. It's always out of reach. If we stopped and thought, how much control do you really have over your life? How much control do you have over how healthy you'll be? Over who you're going to meet in the days and years ahead? How much control do you have over what will happen to house prices in the next five years? Or how much control do you have over how other people are driving around you? Ecclesiastes helps free us from this illusion that we are in control of our own lives. So that's two. And there's one more aspect of this hevel in Ecclesiastes that we need to mention. Because not only does this picture tell us that life is fleeting, and it's elusive, it also tells us that life is an enigma. It's an enigma. In other words, it's, it's a mystery. One author summed it up this way. When he said, all is hevel, he meant nothing in the universe, this side of eternity, was fully understandable, whether good or bad. He says, the point here is not that truth is unknowable or unintelligible, but that reality is unfathomable. Unfathomable means you never get to the bottom of it. There's always more that you don't know. In other words, as a preacher in this book, what he's trying to do is understand God's work in the world. Because all is hevel, he realizes over and over that life is frustratingly perplexing, puzzling, and incomprehensible, though still with meaning 
and significance. There is just so much of a life in this world that no matter how wise you are, no matter what you've experienced, it just leaves you confused. There are many unanswered and unanswerable questions. Why is that? Because all is hevel. Now, I hope you're feeling already how uncomfortable these ideas can make us. When the preacher says all is vanity, he's saying life is fleeting, it's out of our control, and in many ways it's a mystery we can't understand. And when he's saying that, he's touching on three areas that we very much like to pretend the opposite. Think with me here. Don't we love to pretend that life will just go on and on and on? Especially when we're young. The younger we are, the more convinced that we are invincible. Right? It's like, oh, I'm not going to get into a car accident. I'm not going to get sick. Don't worry, I won't get hurt. But then even as we get older, it doesn't go away. We still pretend that life isn't as short as it really is. We just like to pretend that we've got a good long time left and we're really not that old. Or we pretend that we have more control over our lives than we really do. We think, oh no, I can handle this. If I just fill my schedule a little fuller, if I become a little more productive and efficient with my time and I work harder, I can stay in control. We can be or do whatever we want and put our minds to. After all, we are the masters of our fate. And of course, we think that we can figure out anything with enough education and learning. There's no mystery outside the grasp of human wisdom. And then along comes Ecclesiastes and confronts us with the reality that life is short, out of our control, and impossible to fully comprehend. And I say, what a gift. Think about how much of our lives are wasted trying to avoid those realities. Fighting to make time last a little longer, grasping for control, and trying to understand things that aren't understandable. In Ecclesiastes, one thing it does is it helps us see through the smoke of that illusion to the God who's real. It's meant to wean us off of our self-reliance and empty pursuits and instead woo us to the God who can actually satisfy those desires. He alone can give us life that's not fleeting, but eternal. He alone is sovereign over all things so that rather than grasping for control, we can rest in the fact that he has it. And he alone is all wise. That's why we say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable are his ways. So rather than try to know and understand it all, we can trust the one who does. That's what Ecclesiastes wants to do for us. Now, a quick note. I am going to keep using the word vanity throughout the series. Just, it's what's in there in that translation. I think it's more confusing not to use it. But every time you hear vanity, I want you to always hear those three things. Fleeting, uncontrollable, mysterious. That's, I want vanity to be kind of like a little file folder and every time you open it you see three files 
fleeting, uncontrollable, mysterious. All right? Can we agree to do that? Okay. All right, now we come to the preacher's question in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He's, here's his question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? As I said, this is going to be the question that he's trying to answer for the first, whole first half of the book. But to rightly understand this question, we've got to understand that phrase, under the sun. Some people see this as kind of a, a spatial reference. They think it's like us down here, and it's a, a reference to people who try to live life apart from God. Because God's above the sun, we're under the sun, and so it's, it's meant that, okay, when he says under the sun, he means life apart from God. And all of life apart from God is vanity. Yep, that makes sense. But that's not what the preacher is trying to tell us by this phrase at all. Because the way he describes life under the sun is equally true both for those who are Christians and those who aren't. For both, life is short. For both, life is uncontrollable. And for both, life is mysterious. Okay, so what does under the sun mean? Well, in the Bible, the sun is most often used as a marker for time. Think back to Genesis 1. When God creates the sun, he made the sun, he said, to be a marker for seasons, days, and years. It's a timer. So the phrase under the sun is a way of saying, in this time, as long as the earth lasts, this side of eternity, this is how things are. This is reality for life in this age. So this side of the fall, before Jesus comes back, in the age in which we live, he's saying this is what life is like. So go back to the preacher's question then. <clears throat> so what is it that he wants to know? He wants to know, what does man gain by all his toil in this life? In other words, what's the advantage to all of our striving? If it's all just vanity, what do we profit by trying so hard in this world? Shouldn't we just throw up our hands and say, what's the point? So what do we gain? Here's his answer throughout the book. Not much. Not much. That gain is just not there to be had. Now hear me. That does not mean life does not matter. Far from it. But it's as one writer said it so well. He said, looking under the sun for gain through our toil is like trying to buy medicine in a shoe store. The shoe store really matters, but no medicine is found there. He's saying in the same way, when we look for gain, this lasting profit, something to our advantage, when you look for that in this world, he says you're looking for gain in the wrong place and time. But what if, what if this world wasn't all there is? <clears throat> what if God the creator entered into time and space and came into our broken world what if the most unfathomable thing ever happened and the creator king saved his people from the curse of hevel by becoming a curse for them what if this creator king died to give us life that never ends and what if all authority in heaven on earth was given to this king so that now he perfectly controls all things for our good and what if this king is now making known his wisdom and the mystery of his will through his church? 
What if there was a hope and a joy beyond this fleeting, uncontrollable, mysterious life? That's what we're going to be exploring with the preacher as we walk through this book. Okay, but for now, for the rest of our time, let's turn our attention to the preacher's opening poem in verses 4 to 11. The issue he's dealing here with here is one which I think we're all familiar with. That is the repetitiveness of life. On one hand, things are always changing, right? I mean, there's always activity. Something's always going on. But in another sense, it's just a revolving wheel. It's like a treadmill, right? You're constantly moving. There's activity, stuff's happening, and yet nothing has changed. That little belt's gone around and around and around and around and around and around, and yet you're right where you started. Or... Think of so many activities in your everyday lives. Doing the dishes. You do the dishes. You wash them, you dry them, you put them away. But then what? They're dirty again. You mow the grass, but then it grows, and you got to mow it again. You get your email inbox down to zero, and then someone has the audacity to send you another one. Thank you. It just feels like an endless loop at times, doesn't it? That's why I gave the preacher's poem the title, The More Things Change. Because in these verses we see both constant change and yet the fact that ultimately everything stays the same. Look first at verse 4. He says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Every day... 166,000 people die in the world. And every day, another 368,000 are born. Every day. Today, there will be 166,000 people whose lives end. And there will be 368,000 whose lives begin. One generation leaves and is replaced by another. And yet, the earth remains the people on it who they are and where they are they're constantly going and coming going and coming going and coming going and coming and yet the world continues on unchangingly same mountains that your great 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 grandma saw are still there same oceans same skies all new people same world Then he goes specifically into nature to make his point. First, the sun. Look at verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Can you see? He's just saying it's it's a loop. Every morning the sun comes up. Every night it goes down, only to hurry back to do it all over again. Day after day. The sun never does anything different. The sun never gets a day off. The sun never pulls a double. The sun just does what it does over and over and over. Same with the wind in verse 6. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. He's saying, look, even the wind that you, you don't understand where it's coming from and where it's going, he says it has its own courses and it repeats over and over and over again. Look at the water in verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. 
to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. He's saying water is constantly flowing from streams and rivers into the oceans, and yet the ocean's never filled up. More and more water comes in day after day after day, and yet the oceans never really change that much. Then after he looks at the natural world, he says, look, it's not just out in nature. He says, look at human experience. Verse 8, he says, all things, all these things, is what he's talking about that I just said. He said, they're all full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. In other words, he's saying all this endless repetition in life, this never-ending treadmill of vanity, he says it's so wearying, our mouths can't even describe it. He says a man cannot utter it. Like there's not enough words, there's not enough things you can say to actually rightly communicate how wearying this is. And he says, and just like the oceans are never too full to take in more water, he says our eyes have never seen so much that we can't see more. Or our ears so full that we can't hear more. There's never a point where like you don't hear that because you're like, oh, I'm sorry, my ears were full, right? Like you can't stop it. Like don't try that excuse, husbands. (laughs) Or wives. There was a little bit too much laughter on that one. Same thing with your eyes. It's like you can't look at something and go temporarily blind. It's like, no, I, was, I reached my limit, right? They just keep more and more and more. They're never satisfied. In fact, this is one of the ways that we, not just now, but every generation has always tried to escape the monotony of life is by filling our eyes, by filling our ears. But no matter how much Netflix and YouTube we watch, no matter how much music or how many podcasts we listen to, it's never enough. We take in more and more and more, but we're never filled. This endless repetition is felt in other ways too. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It it has been already in the ages before us. So he's saying, look, just like the world of nature is on an endless loop, so too is history. The same things happen over and over and over again. Now, sometimes things seem new. He says, but if, now, if you look more closely, they're not really new. We say, oh, oh, yes, there are. Well, I just heard a new song. He's like, yeah, but there's always been songs. Well, we just had two new babies born in our church. He's like, yeah, the babies have been born before. Well, there's a new war that, yeah, wars have happened. I got a new job. Well, people have changed jobs before. Technology, surely there's new, he's like, yeah, people have created new things to make life easier before. And on and on. That's why he draws the conclusion. He says, look, there is nothing new under the sun. In this age, there's nothing new, he says. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But first, let's finish up his poem. In verse 11, he caps it off by saying, There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So even though there's this endless repetition in life, we don't remember the things from before. Like it's, you'd think that would be like living in Groundhog Day, right? That sooner or later we'd figure it out and be like, oh, I know it's, no, we don't. We don't remember what's happened before. In fact, the things that happened in the past are quickly forgotten. We see this all the time, right? It's why 
older people are constantly astonished that younger people don't know who some celebrity is or haven't heard of some event that was so big in their day. I mean, I don't, I'm not ready to embrace older, but I have this same problem with Ben all the time. We'll be talking and I'll mention a name, just assuming that everybody knows this person. He'll be like, who's that? And I'm like, oh! Right? It's because we have time between us. And so that happens over and over again. And it's going to, guess what? All you young people who think, yeah, that's funny. It'll never happen to us. Someday, your grandkids are going to be like, Grandma, what in the world was TikTok? Was, what was that? The same way that now if you pull out a rotary phone, your, your kids or your grandkids think like, was this from a spacecraft? Where did this come from? The whole point is that life is repetitive, but not remembered. Over and over and over and over. And yet it's like, for us, it's the first time. Because we don't remember, oh, this has happened before. This has happened before. Happened before. And in all this repetition and forgetfulness, what we are doing is we're constantly longing for something new to break the cycle. We feel the stuckness, the repetitiveness. We think, I need something new. And I need something that will help us be remembered. I love how one writer put it. I'm going to throw this up on the screen. Here's how he expresses that longing. He talks about it in terms of us pretending. He says, we pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. We pretend that if we change jobs, we won't experience the humdrum tedium and ordinariness of life. We pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. We pretend that if we end one relationship and start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped. We pretend that if we were married or weren't married, we would be content. We pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. We pretend that if we get through this week's pile of laundry and dirty diapers and shopping lists and school runs and busy evenings, next week will be quieter. We pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. We pretend we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free from weariness. And here's how he sums it up. We long for change in a world of permanent repetition and we dream of how to interrupt it. We long for lives of permanence in a world of constant change and we strive to achieve it. This is the longing that we all feel. Those two things, this, this desire for both permanence and newness. The problem, as he said in verse nine, is there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing of this world is truly new or has the power to give us both the change and the permanence that we desperately long for. The good news is that Jesus is not of this world. In the Old Testament, God announced beforehand through the prophet Isaiah, he said, behold, I am doing a new thing. Then in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he promised there would come a day where he was going to make a new covenant. 
Then when Jesus came, something utterly new happened and that God, the creator, became man and entered into this world of endless repetition. He broke the cycle just by showing up, but that's not all he did because when he came, he came and started doing new things that had never been done before. Then on the cross, as Jesus died to pay for our sins and in his resurrection where he conquered death, that enemy that makes all vanity, Jesus gave us new life. He gave us new hearts and made us a new creation. And one day we will worship him with a new song and a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus the King makes all things new. And until that day, we have his promise of both permanence and newness for every single day when he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Do you hear the permanence? They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Friends, there may be nothing new under the sun. But in Jesus, we can be made new. And we can experience his new mercies every day. Again and again and again. And that is a hook strong enough for us to hang our happiness on. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you, are, that you are a God like this. That you are a God who created the world as it is and you created it in an orderly way so that there is repetition. Repetition is not all bad. And so we praise you for the fact that there are seasons. That every day I can bank on the fact that that sun's coming up again. But we praise you for that. And yet we also... We feel our creatureliness and our limitations in that. And we thank you that you have shown that you are greater than our limitations. You are an unlimited God who entered into creation and did the only truly new thing. And thank you that you now allow us to share in this new work, that you give us this new life in your son and that you promise that your mercies will be new every morning. God, would we stop trying to, to grasp for control of our lives? Would we stop trying to lengthen them and pretend like they're not fleeting? And would we try, stop trying to understand things that just simply are not meant to be understood by us? And would we instead rest in the fact that you are in control, you know all things, and you are good? So thank you for this book. Would you, would you do life-changing works in each of us as we walk through it. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.